0: Good evening, evening. I'm so glad to see all of you here. I would like to welcome you to the Enoch Pratt Free Library's Writers' Live series. I am Vivian Fisher, I manage this beautiful department that you're sitting in, so I'm so glad that you have the opportunity to be in here. It is my pleasure to introduce and welcome back to the Pratt Library this evening's author, Bob Luke. Mr. Luke is the author of four books, including the most famous woman in baseball, Effa Manley and the Negro Leagues, the Baltimore League Giants, Sport and Society in the Age of Negro League Baseball, and numerous articles on the history of baseball and the Negro Leagues. He lives in Garrick Park, and, and this evening he will discuss his latest work, Integrating the Oreos, Baseball and Race in Baltimore, and as many of you probably know, he is a really great baseball fan by all these wonderful books that he's written. So please join me in welcoming Miss Luke, Mr. Luke to Pratt's African American Department and the Pratt Library. Thank you. Oh, I'm sorry. I just your books. <laughs> All right.
1: Thank you for that great introduction, and uh, good evening, everyone. Thank you uh, for coming. So, the integration of the Baltimore Orioles. Uh, I got interested in the topic because I had written a book on the on the Baltimore Negro League team, the Baltimore Light Giants, which uh, and they folded in, in the late. Uh, uh, 40s, early 50s, and I got curious. So, well, so what happened to uh, uh, integrated baseball in Baltimore after the the Negro League teams left? And so that got me into this book. Um, and I guess a couple of observations to start with. One, I think looking back over the history of the Orioles and how they dealt with African American players. They went through a lot of the same phases, stages, dynamics that uh, that the city did, and that in many ways that the country did. Um, Going from pretty rigid, closed, segregated uh, system to uh, a much more integrated system, um, where. One's capabilities and competencies and and skills skills really mattered more than the uh, color of the skin. But as I'm sure you know, the uh, St. Louis Browns came to Baltimore in 1954 uh, for a variety of reasons. And in 1954, of course, that was the year of the Brown versus the School of Education. You got mail. <laughs> so. So that was the same year as the uh, uh, Supreme Court decision, Brown versus the, uh, School of Educa- the uh, Board of Education, that uh, uh, did away legally with segregated public schools. Um, and the, the Orioles as a team uh, w- were very segregated. They had, in 19... 19- Fifty-three in St. Louis, they had only one black player on their team. Does anybody know who it was? Very 1953 St. Louis Browns, one tall, lanky, famous. Satchel. Yeah, Satchel Page. So Satchel Page comes with the team to Baltimore, and at that time he is, uh, if I had my math right, 47 years old, which by Conventional wisdom is really very old to be a pitcher. And so they let him go. The Orioles management let him go. Uh, he ended up pitching for Bilvec and the Miners for uh, three more years. Uh, he turned down contracts from three major league teams because he was doing so well with the Miami Marlins. And the city lost out on a fabulous player and a great character and probably 100,000 tickets. Um, the powers that be with the Orioles at that time. Art Eller was the general manager. He came from Philadelphia. He was a Baltimore uh, native uh, who had been in baseball for a long time. Uh, as of year two, Paul Richards became the manager of the Orioles. And he was a manager for six, seven years and uh, had a lot of influence in the early years. And from like 54 to, really from 54 to 64, there were some African-American players in and out of the team. None stayed very long. Most were outfielders. Uh, Bob Boyd and Connie Johnson were a couple of uh, uh, players who who stayed longer than most and, and made a real contribution to the uh, team. But like many other teams, uh, it was pretty much a white roster. Uh, Art Ellers and Paul Richards uh, would make speeches throughout the city saying that we only sign players based on their competence and their skill. Uh, And they gave a lot of speeches to the Frontiers Club, if that rings a bell with people, which was uh, African-American Association of uh, Businessmen. uh, But the curious thing was uh, a few African-American players came to the Orioles and few really came to the American League. I mean, it was known that the American League lagged way behind the National League and African-American players. You had Willie Mays and Hank Guerin and Roberto Clemente and uh, uh, Roy Campanella, who uh, had played with the Eli Giants, right? And uh, uh, Joe Black, right, the pitcher, Joe Black, right? Junior Gilliam. Uh, yes, with the Dodgers. Dodgers had a lot of black players, the uh, Cleveland Indians did, and uh, I attribute a lot of that to the, uh, to the ownership, branch, or the management. Branch Rickey, of course, was the uh, general manager of the Dodgers throughout this period and signed Jackie Robinson, um, and Bill Veck, uh, as uh, uh, owner and uh, pretty much general manager of the Cleveland Indians, uh, signed a number of black players. The the watershed event for the Orioles really happened in 1965, 66. Uh, Paul Richards had left. Uh, Hank Bauer had uh, come in as manager. There had been an interim manager between Richards and Bauer. Uh, and Gerald Hofberger, who owned, among other things, oh, thank you, among other things, uh, the National Bohemian Brewery, right? the land of pleasant living. Some people say it is still the land of pleasant living, even though the brewery is uh, not there. Hofberger took an entirely different tack toward um, African-American players than had other owners and managers, where he went out of his way to help African-American players uh, fit in Uh, when, Frank Robinson and uh, his wife Barbara tried to find a house to live in. It was impossible. Uh, I understand we have a gentleman in the audience who helped um, Frank and Barbara find a house, finally, where they could uh, live. But Gerald Hofberger was also active in that process. And before, no one had ever really intervened to help other players find a place to live. He, uh, Hofberger also interacted very friendly, in a very friendly manner with the players. Uh, Frank Robinson uh, thanked uh, Hofberger for his friendship during his uh, Hall of Fame induction speech in 1982. So, Hofberger came in with Frank Cashin and Harold Dalton from the brewery. and set a whole new tone and culture uh, for the Orioles. Um, and so, of course, the big event was in 19, December 1965 when Frank Robinson was traded from the Cincinnati Reds to the Baltimore Orioles. Uh, as you may well know, Frank Robinson was a superstar with the Cincinnati Reds. He had been Rookie of the Year. He had been named the most valuable player in the National League. He had a batting average of over uh, 300 Um And when asked, why would you trade Frank Robinson, uh, the owner of the Reds said, well, he's 30 years old. Not that old for a a baseball player. Um, And he went on to say, and he's an old 30. And that really got under Frank Robinson's skin. He He said, that comment really just motivated me to go out and do all I could do. So in that trade, he came, his first season was 1966, and he led the Orioles to the World Series, a four-game sweep sweep of the uh, uh, Brooklyn Dodgers. L.A. Well, Dodgers. L.A. Dodgers. Dodgers. I don't mean to give away my age like that. Yes, thank you. L.A. Dodgers. Um, and He was uh, voted most valuable player for his performance during the 66 season and became the first uh, baseball player to be named the most valuable player in both the American and the National League. And he won a number of other prizes and awards. But he still had a difficult time finding a place to live. I mean, Baltimore was so rigidly segregated that it didn't, seemed to matter much what one's uh, contributions on the baseball field were. uh, He just, he and his wife and other black players had a difficult time finding places to live. Uh, The 67 season was kind of a downer, but then they came back in 1968, and from 1968 through, I guess it's 1983 was the last uh, World Series uh the Orioles became a real powerhouse uh team uh, during those years, thanks largely to an influx of uh black players uh you had sam Bowens you had paul blair you had uh um eddie murray you had which is an interesting story in itself um eddie murray uh uh Practically carried the Orioles for four or five years uh, as first baseman slugger. He eventually hit 500 home runs, Uh, but he left Baltimore. He was he was traded. Uh, He was the the fans got on him so much that he asked and begged to be traded, and so uh, the Orioles finally did trade him. But uh, a lot of people thought that it uh, was a sad day for the city too see Eddie Murray be traded uh, away. Um, the city of Baltimore, I think, went through, from what I could tell, many of the same struggles in becoming a more integrated uh, city The uh, as it affected the Orioles and other baseball teams. In the 50s, the uh, major downtown hotels would not accept African Americans um, up through the, the late 50s uh they they finally did, and uh a person that had a great deal of influence in integrating the hotels was uh the was Theodore McKeldin, who was a very active, very liberal uh both mayor and governor, and supported integration not only of the orioles but uh the city itself um and then um mid-80s into the 90s, the number of African-American players began to fall off. At at its high point, maybe 25 or so percent of all Major League players were African-American, and then that fell down to 8-9 percent, something in that arena. Not so much as I could gather it from uh, segregation, but uh, a lot of the uh, kids got more interested in basketball and football. Scholarships opened up in basketball and football, and a lot of the colleges throughout the country uh, where blacks had not been allowed to play before. And and many said that uh, uh, basketball and football were just more fun. Baseball was a slow, boring game for many people. Um, so they... Uh, and and today the uh, Orioles have, it's really a very international medley of uh, of players from Australia, Korea, uh, Caribbean, Mexico, United States. Um, and there was sort of that rise and fall of uh, African American players with the Orioles. One interesting thing I ran across was that when um, uh, Edward Bennett Williams had been the owner of the Orioles for uh, 10 or 12 years. Uh, he's another story in himself. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Uh, he was a very hands-on guy. You know, He got out there on the field. He gave Earl Weaver orders about what to do and what not to do. And uh, it's none of this sitting back, taking it easy. But he died of cancer. He had a, this 11-year bout with cancer and finally killed him his so the team was up for sale uh, Gerald Hofberger had sold the team um and he then tried to buy it back and he tried to buy it back with the help of ten african American Baltimore businessmen and had put together all the financing, had all the plans in place um and was supposed to deliver the papers to uh, William's um, attorneys by 3 o'clock on this given day. And uh, at uh, 3.30, he got a call saying, no need to come. You missed the deadline. And so the team was then sold to a uh, a businessman and investor from uh, uh, New York who took a very hands-off approach, uh, but had on the staff, Larry. Uh, Luchini, Luciano? Right, was his law partner, assistant. And he became kind of the uh, general manager of the team and made many overtures to the uh, African-American community uh, in Baltimore. It was active in, in securing... Jobs for the uh, for blacks in the construction of uh, Camden Yards uh, had some negotiations with a task force. There was a task force that had been formed by uh, uh, Pete Rawlings, who was a longtime assemblyman here in Baltimore, um, and he had gotten the support of the Black Caucus in the Maryland Assembly to support financing for the building of Camden Yards. A lot of the other legislators wanted the money to go to other causes. Um, But uh, the story goes that uh, uh, Luchino went to him and got his support, Uh, and when I talked, I didn't talk with Rawlings, he had passed away by that time, but I did talk with um, Kurt Anderson, who was, he is still in office, and he was active in this process, and, and he told me that they they wrote into the legislation that the the building of Camden Yards would involve twenty percent of jobs for African Americans. And he said they routinely did that because they said you just couldn't trust the uh, uh, the white community to uphold its promises to hire minority employees. So they actually wrote that in the legislation, and Gino was instrumental in. Uh, uh, Making that happen, as was Rawlings. And the task force and the Orioles met, trying to increase the number of uh, blacks who went to the games, which there were relatively few going to the game for a number of reasons. Uh, they had a couple of meetings, uh, and then Angelo, Peter Angelo, appears on the scene. He he buys the team uh, in 1990. 1990- one I think and 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 Angelo's had run for city council and had served on city council and had been the first uh person of Greek ancestry to serve on the city council and he was very pro open housing and and lent a lot of support to that as the owner of the Orioles he had one meeting with the task force of uh, the, the Black Caucus, uh, ministers, educators, other citizens. And they didn't come to terms. Uh, and so the meetings were discontinued. And, and to this day, one of, the, one of the objectives, I should say, of the task force was to have more blacks not only on the field, but hired as staff and executives in the Orioles organization. That had been one of the task forces. Major objective, and that really never came to pass. Jackie uh, uh, Frank Robinson uh, ended up. He had. He had. Frank Robinson also became the first uh, black manager when he managed the Cleveland Indians. He became the Orioles' first black manager. He also became the first uh, assistant general manager, and was assistant general manager in 1992 when there was a reorganization. And he was reorganized out, uh, uh, as was uh, Calvin Hill, had left a few years earlier. And from that day to this, there really has been no African-American at the executive level uh, with the Orioles. There have been several, I understand, in major staff positions, but not in uh, uh, real executive decision-making decisions. And a number of... the. uh, African-American community leaders I talked with said they're still looking for, as one of them put it, the last shoot to drop for the Orioles to uh, hire African-American uh, executives. Um, so in a nutshell, that's sort of what I discovered about the integration of the Orioles in uh, Baltimore. Let me stop there and see uh, what questions or comments people might have.
0: Is it true, the paradox, that a lot of the northern cities were actually later in integrating their teams? And if that's the case, if that paradox is true, how do we explain that?
1: That is an interesting question. I really did not look into that in any detail, but certainly the last teams to integrate uh, were the uh, Detroit Tigers, the uh, Boston Red Sox, uh, the Yankees. Um, you think that those teams would be, based on our history, would be more enlightened? Wouldn't you? I think one of the things I, I think I learned from this process is that it all had an awful lot to do with who owned the team. That's right. Who That's owned right. the team? I mean, like Tom Yawkey owned the Red Sox, the Red Sox right. right? And Yawkey was a very wealthy, I think he had a lumber business in uh, South Carolina, North Carolina, somewhere down there. And he was of the attitude, somebody asked him once, why don't you have any black ball players on the team? And he gave the usual story of, well, we just hire, you know, or we sign players on the basis of competence and so on and so forth. And he went on to say, and if... Anybody says I won't hire blacks, they're crazy. I have a hundred of them working on my farm down south. You know. Let me, let me, let
2: me just. Uh, so. in, in response to that, uh, Tom Yawkey had the opportunity to sign a gentleman named Jackie Robinson, and he turned it down. Right. But of course, he couldn't find any competent
1: right. ball
2: players who were African American.
1: Right. I mean, he, they held a tryout, did they not, in, in yes. Boston with Jackie Robinson yes. and a couple other players, yes. and uh, it was more of a sham really than yes. a tryout. Yes. And uh, so I would again I think one of the things I really learned from this, the, the research for this book, was that the, the progress and the pace of integration has a lot to do with the white leadership structure. I mean, even in a city of Baltimore, as I could I could see. Uh, Theodore McKeldin was really a giant moving force uh, in a city that was pretty rigidly integrated in its schools and its um, taverns and bars and cleaners and funeral homes and churches. Um, and McKeldin, was, he was white and he was a Republican in a largely black democratic uh, city and he just had this style where he, would, uh, he was a sharp dresser uh, and loved talking with people. And he would ride throughout the entire city, I think in, his, in some kind of limousine. And he would get out of the limousine and just go around talking with people. And he also uh, was not afraid to take on you know, the city council and the hotel owners and the, and the business establishment. And the same thing, I think, can be said for the owners of, of baseball teams. Bill Veck, for instance, was uh, very active in hiring African-American players, uh, as was Branch Rickey and, and Gerald Hofberger. but the Tom Yawkes of the world, not so much. Yes? Sir.
2: Yeah, I was just wondering if you could tell me about the farm system for the major leagues at that time. Was, was it also uh, segregated in the Orioles' farm system? And, <coughs> Did they just not get all the way to the top, or was there just no black people all the way down through this?
1: was yeah, an interesting question. There was a uh, farm system. They had uh, the Orioles had teams in uh, Texas, in Virginia, in uh, Rochester, Rochester with the big AAA team, and and Eastern Shore and York, Pennsylvania, um, and there were a number of uh, uh, black players in these minor league teams. Uh, and some of them occasionally during the first 10 or 12 years made kind of cameo appearances with the Orioles, uh, but not not too many. And a number of them told me that, like Joe Durham, for instance, who was the second uh, black player for the Orioles in the September 1954, he played with the Texas Missions and the, uh, the York... Red Roses, something like that. Pennsylvania team. Mm-hmm. White, white, roses. white Roses, White Roses. Who wrote the book? Oh. <laughs> right. um, and He said he got, he was treated very well in Baltimore. He said that in games he played in Baltimore, he didn't get a lot of uh, comments from fans, uh, but that he did in uh, places like Newport News, where he was from, in Hagerstown, Maryland, um, they were—they uh, got a lot of vitriolic comments. I mean, it was a sad scene, but it was, seemed to be much more pronounced in the minor leagues than uh, in the Orioles. Um,
2: in putting this book together, did you have any chance, or did you ever talk with Sam Lacy from the Afro-American?
1: Uh, yeah, I didn't talk with him. He had passed he away. He passed away. But I read practically all of his columns. Actually,
2: he traveled with Jackie Robinson on many occasions as he went around to help him, you know, to see that he was quiet and didn't get into a lot of trouble and listen to Sam, and Sam was a gentleman and very good sports writer, very good.
1: Oh, excellent, yes, yes, and he wrote for the uh, Baltimore Afro-American and was a leading voice in pushing for integration and... Uh, the other thing you mentioned Jackie Robinson, um, sometimes I think the image is that once Jackie Robinson was signed, baseball was integrated, but that was not the case. Jackie Robinson clearly was the first uh, African American to play Major League Baseball, but by 1954, when the Orioles came here, I forget the exact number, but there were, I think, less than 20 blacks who had put on a Major League uniform.
2: And, and half of them were in New York. I'm sorry. Half of the blacks who played baseball were in New York, either with the Giants sure. or with the Dodgers.
1: Yes, yeah, yeah, they were right. So they had, you know, leadership that supported that. I well, Cleveland had uh,
2: Larry Doby. Right. He was one of the first that came in the ball. I think.
1: American, yeah, in the American League, Larry Doby. Larry Doby, right? He really he was the first American League black. when he came up he actually was signed by the Orioles it's I think a little known story that he was signed uh, and was at spring training in Arizona in 58 I think I forget the exact year but then was traded before the season started so he never really played for the Orioles but he was with the team for a short period of time in spring training why you know
0: me. While, uh, baseball, while baseball was integrating we talk about the integration of the players what was the story with the attendance was there also a segregation were blacks not allowed or did they sit in separate places or how was that handled
1: well good uh, uh, good question uh, from what I understand the, the, the relationship between the team and the African-American community was uh, not that great. A uh, few efforts were made to engage the African-American community. You know, they didn't give out a lot of tickets to people. Um, uh few went to the game. As far as I know, uh, Memorial Stadium was never segregated per se. But I think there was a lot of informal segregation that uh, I found instances where uh, blacks who went, uh, who bought tickets, all found themselves all in the same area in the bleachers, um, and that. Um, was the other point I was going to make. Oh, and that occasionally, when uh, blacks would go into what was called the uh, the bowl, the curved part of Memorial Stadium, which was the grandstand and the more uh, the better seats, that the ushers uh, who were all white gave them a particularly hard time. Um, And a number of uh, older black gentlemen that I talked with could recall uh, instances of of, uh, not wanting to go to to the games for a number of reasons. I mean, one of which was the history of segregation, but uh, a number of them also said, well, it's an expensive proposition to take, you know, four kids' family to a game and so forth. I talked with, I went up to a game in... uh, 2013 and I or 14 and I talked with a couple of the old-time ushers there. Who I promised I would not name uh, and asked them how many uh, blacks come to the game and uh, and to the person they said a lot fewer than you would think. I mean I couldn't really find any statistics on that, but my sense is that and this may be true beyond Baltimore, fewer blacks go to baseball games than go to football and basketball games. You know, I think that's more where some of the interest and loyalties lie from a fan base point of view. Got a question in the back there.
2: What was your interest in this topic? What brought you to the topic?
1: I had written an earlier book. I just happened to bring a copy with me called The Baltimore Eli Giants, which is a story about the Negro League team that played here in Baltimore from 1938 to about 1950. So then I got curious. So, okay, so what happened integration-wise with the Baltimore Orioles, who came to Baltimore just about the time the Eli Giants were fading from the scene because all of the stars and the good players were going to the majors. So that got me into the to the Orioles. Okay. Did you get a sense of what the Orioles clubhouse was in the late '60s and '70s as this integration occurred? Because you hear stories about how with the Dodgers, how difficult it was for Jackie Robinson with his own players, and what would, did you like? Just
0: in terms of the Orioles clubhouse, did it all change with Frank? Like, what were your, what were your thoughts about that?
1: Great question. Yes, in the early days, there was pretty clear uh, segregation. Uh, in the dugout, Paul Richards, when he wanted to talk to or about Connie Johnson, say one of the black players, he would ask one of his coaches to go do it, even if the player was sitting right next to him. And uh, that did not go down well. And he um, uh, did a number of things like that. The, after the games, in the early ten, first 10 years, black players would go their way, a lot of them up and down Pennsylvania Avenue, um, and the white players their way. But long about uh, early 70s, a number of the players, white and black, chose to live in Baltimore. And they all got together and formed a basketball team. And you had you had Jim Palmer and Joe Durham and um, so, uh, Al Bunbury uh, had this basketball team, and they started January 1, and they would play up until they had to go to spring training, and they would play throughout the area games with uh, you know, high school, uh, not high school teams, but high school faculty. And uh, Bunbury said, we, we really whipped the faculty, and the kids loved it. So they, I mean, that was uh, an example of camaraderie amongst the white and black. And then there were some that uh, lived together out in uh, Cockeysville. Uh, uh, four, uh, eight of them, uh, four whites, three blacks, one Mexican, bought condominiums together. And they would get together and barbecue and uh, they would go to each other's house for card games and, So over a period of time, it became pretty well integrated in the uh, dugout as well as on the field and outside of the stadium.
2: Um, You did the book on the Elite Giants. Could you just run down some of the great players that came and played for the Elite Giants that then went to the major leagues?
1: Sure. I mean, three come to mind. I think probably the... Most famous player was Roy Campanella, uh, who was with the uh, Eli Giants from about oh, 37 to I guess 48, and then he went uh, to the Dodgers. It's sort of an interesting story about that. He was he was uh, called to a meeting in Branch Rickey's office, and according to him, he didn't know why he was being called, and he thought Rickey wanted him to play for this phantom team. Rickey was trying to organize for some nefarious purpose, Uh, but that was not the case. Uh, Joe Black, the great pitcher, who went to Morgan um, State College, Uh, 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 the uh, Dodger, the... uh, uh, who was the... uh, Gilliam, Junior Gilliam, uh, played for the Eli Giants and went to... Um, uh, Brooklyn and and Gilliam was from Nashville, Tennessee and before he played baseball he was uh, he was a custodian in uh, department stores and played sandlot ball and like a lot of these guys he was pretty good at it um, anybody think of anyone else? I think that's it. Joe Black, Gilliam, Roy Campanella Satchel, right. I don't think Satchel ever played for the Eli Giants. He did play a couple of years for the uh, Black Sox, Baltimore Black Sox, which predated the uh, Eli Giants. Ah, a gem of a guy, Monty Irvin. I got to know him through um, a book I did on uh, Effa Manley, who was the general manager for the Newark Eagles, and he played for the Newark Eagles. Monty Irvin uh, grew up in Orange, uh, New Jersey, was a four star athlete in high school. uh, Signed for Peanuts to play with the Newark Eagles, which he did. Uh, Then he went to, uh, he served in World War II in France for uh, three years and came back. And he, in fact, would have been the first player, first black player to be signed. Uh, but he turned it down. He said he was so frazzled uh, as a result of his uh, uh, war experiences. He didn't feel he was up to his best uh, abilities to play baseball. And so he said, this is not yet my time. But a couple of years later, he did sign with the Giants. And uh, it's just he, his autobiography is called uh, Nice Guys Finish First, you know, it's a takeoff on the old thing about nice guys finish last. And he, he is just a gem of a guy. Unfortunately, he just passed away a couple of months ago. But a gem of a guy.
2: He was the first first African-American in the commissioner's office. He
1: yes, he was, That's yes. Right. right, he was, he was. And he was there for a good 15 yeah. years or so, yeah. yeah. In
2: fact, he represented the commissioner's office when Brooks Robinson got into the Hall of Fame and they had it. Baltimore after he got in up in Cooperstown
1: and it was Monty Irving that represented the commissioner's office here in Baltimore. Is that right? Yeah. Monty Irvin also tells a story about Baltimore when he was with the Newark Eagles. Uh, they would come into town. They'd stay at the York Hotel, right, which is uh, in the African-American community up on off Pennsylvania Avenue. And he said, you know, we usually knew where we could go to eat and go to clubs and so we usually went to those places. But he said this one time we tried something different and we were going to go where we knew we couldn't go and that was to Obrickies uh, back in 48, 49. I'm sure things have changed since then. Uh, and so that he, Monty is leading these guys down the street. They see the whoever it is standing in front of Obrickies looking at them as they're coming down and um the guy says, I'm sorry, gentlemen, but we don't serve colored. And Monty said, he said, we don't want colored. We want some of your good seafood. <laughs> I mean, he had that kind of sense of humor about him. Uh, I mean, he, some people ended up being a little bitter. I think Larry Dober Doby ended up being a little bitter, but not Monty. He, he, he had a good sense of humor about him, and,
2: I just have a question. Now, when Baltimore didn't have the Orioles, so they had the elite giants, I guess, before that, did, did white people go to the uh, to the African-American games or the the Black League games Some did. a lot or
1: not? Well, okay, right. There was also the international Baltimore Orioles who had played here for, what, 50 years before... Uh, because Baltimore had a, an American League team back in the 1890s, the Yankees. The, yeah, right. They eventually went to become the Yankees, and sorry, New York Islanders, and then the Yankees, and And John McGraw, you know, was the manager for a couple of years. Uh, they won the pennant under John McGraw. He tried to sign a black player uh, that he met in uh, Little Rock, Arkansas. Uh, Toko was his nickname he was African American he was playing second base for this hotel team McGraw loved him he knew nobody would uh, accept an African American player in the majors so they made a deal Toko became an Indian (laughs) and told the press that McGraw found him in Indian country and that he was uh, the best player on the Indian team, and so forth. And uh, it all came to naught when uh, there was Charlie Comiskey, owner of the Chicago White Sox, figured out that uh, Toko was really African-American, and his father ran a funeral home and, and, and had uh, racehorses in Cincinnati and blew the whistle, so to speak. But from that point until 1954, there was no... No African-American players with the uh, International League Orioles. Uh, And uh, it was a pretty rigidly segregated baseball system during those times.
0: Any other questions? Well, if you have no other questions, we have books out in the hallway for sale. And Mr. Luke... (laughs) Thank you all very much. Nice to be here. Thank you so much for coming.